All right. Uh, thanks uh, so much to Phil and Abby and Fred for leading us in worship so well. Uh, my name's Dave. I want to add my welcome to that of uh, Owen earlier on. It's great to see these folks here in the octagon, uh, but it's great to know that there are people watching us at home as well. And uh, just pray that uh, you'll be able to enter into uh, the whole spirit of what we're uh, doing this afternoon as we come and worship God and hear from his word. I'd encourage you, if you haven't done so already, to grab your Bible uh, now uh, and get ready because uh, we're going to be looking uh, at a passage from Scripture and it'd be great for you to follow along uh, in your own Bible. Since Christmas, we've been traveling on the road with Jesus as we've worked our way through Luke's Gospel. We've seen Jesus undergoing temptation and resisting temptation in the wilderness. We've seen him calling his disciples to come and follow him. We've seen him perform miraculous healings, casting out an evil spirit, and even raising a young man from the dead. And we've seen him upset the religious authorities with his teaching and in challenging their slavish adherence to the law rather than seeking to do good and to serve other people. Today, we're going to press the fast-forward button. You know, we've only got to chapter 8 in Luke's Gospel, but now we're going to fast-forward uh, a few chapters. Uh, and we're going to stay in Luke's Gospel, uh, but we're going to leap forward uh, towards the end of that book. With Easter approaching, we're going to take a short break from our On the Road with Jesus series and focus on the events of Holy Week, the week that led up to the crucifixion of Jesus and his glorious resurrection three days later. It's a story that's probably very familiar to almost all of us, but we return to it not just because it's that time of year, but because it's absolutely central to our faith. The account of what we call Palm Sunday appears in all four of the Gospels. We're going to look primarily at Luke's Gospel, although I'll refer uh, to the accounts in the other Gospels for some of the details. You can find the passage we're going to read in Luke's Gospel in chapter 19, and we're going to be begin reading at verse 28. I'm going to read the whole of that uh, uh, section, but then we'll loop back and look at some of the sections in more detail. I don't know about your Bible, but in my Bible, uh, this passage is entitled The Triumphal Entry. Yeah? There's something to rejoice about here. The Triumphal Entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Let's read together from verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Beth Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it, just as Jesus had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? 
And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. When we're looking at scripture, it's so important we don't just pick verses at random, or even stories at random, but we understand the context. We look at what's happened before, and then we look at what uh, comes after the piece on which we're focusing. And here in verse 28, actually Luke encourages us to do just that. When he writes, and when he had said these things, it's a bit of a clue, isn't it? A bit of a prompt for us to remind ourselves what Jesus has been saying and doing just before. Well, earlier in this chapter, we see Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus, a chief tax collector who had acquired much wealth from the commissions paid to him by the other tax collectors. They were hated by the Jews because they collected taxes on behalf of their Roman oppressors, often collecting far more than was due and enriching themselves. We see Jesus going to the house of Zacchaeus, once again associating with someone the Jews thought of as a sinner. But on that day, Zacchaeus responds to Jesus, and having found salvation, willingly gives of his possessions to the poor and to repay those that he's cheated in any way. Jesus declares, today salvation has come to this house. And he goes on to say, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus then goes on to teach the people in a picture form about the coming kingdom of God. Through the parable of the ten miners, Jesus tried yet again to help them to understand that in heading towards Jerusalem, he wasn't about to establish his earthly kingdom. His purpose in going to Jerusalem was to die. He tried on a number of occasions to explain to his followers what was going to happen to him. In the previous chapter of Luke's Gospel, we're told that Jesus took his disciples on one side and told them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. Carrying on in verse 28, we read, He went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. 
You know, I get the sense of Jesus striding out ahead and the disciples trailing some way uh, behind him. Jesus knew exactly what awaited him in Jerusalem. And yet, or actually rather because of that, he was purposeful. He was striding on, pressing on to get there. Whilst the disciples didn't fully grasp what was to take place, maybe the talk of flogging and um, killing and mocking didn't, may have caused them to be fearful. I wonder how we cope with conflict. Psychologists tell us that there are three classic responses to conflict situations. Fight, flight, or freeze. We can fight the person or the situation that represents conflict to us, believing that attack is the best form of defense. Or maybe we're conflict-averse. We'll do anything to avoid conflict. We avoid any form of confrontation, often leaving situations to fester for years. Or thirdly, do we freeze, withdraw, go all silent and sulk? I wonder which is kind of your tendency. Well, for the disciples, they would have preferred to stay in Bethany. They were comfortable there. They didn't want to face what awaited them in Jerusalem. But Jesus was not to be deflected. He models for us a totally different response to that of the psychologists. Fully knowing what awaited him, he was determined to go to Jerusalem to fulfill all that the prophets had written concerning him. The Old Testament prophets, inspired by God, had written about his birth, they'd written about his ministry, his suffering and his death, and Jesus fulfilled all that had been written about him. In writing to the Philippians, Paul says, and being found in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Obedience to the Father's will was the response of Jesus in this situation. And that's the response that we, as Christians, need to learn. Just as Jesus' life was mapped out for him, God has a plan for your life and for mine. When his people were exiled in Babylon, God spoke these words to them through the prophet Jeremiah. For, the, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil. To give you a hope, and a, a future and a hope. And he tells them how to discover those plans and to walk in them. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Let's read on in verse 29. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. 
untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. We're not told which of his disciples Jesus chose. But can you imagine the conversation that took place as they walked along that road? Well, thank you, Jesus. Why us? <laughs> I can understand that you, Jesus, might get away with this, but we're not famous, we're not well-known like you. We can't just stroll up and take somebody else's property. And why, why does he need a colt that no one's ever ridden on? We walk everywhere. So why all of a sudden does the master want a colt? It must have seemed a pretty bizarre request. Nevertheless, they did as they were asked. For those of us who are Christians, we get asked by God to do things. There's general things, such as we read in the Bible, about how to live our lives, about sharing the good news of the gospel with others. But we should expect that God will speak to us through his Holy Spirit and prompt us to do specific things. I wonder what's the most bizarre or stretching thing that he's ever asked you to do. I can recall a time when I was facing a particularly challenging meeting at work. It was challenging for me, I recognize that, but it was challenging actually for everyone else involved. I felt God prompting me to pray for my colleagues. And there's nothing unusual about that, and I would pray in private for my colleagues, but actually I felt the Holy Spirit prompting me to pray out loud at the beginning of the meeting for my colleagues. I thought, wow, you know, you don't do this sort of stuff you know, in a business environment. But I was obedient to what God uh, said to me. And I, prompt, I, I prayed for them that, and for myself that that we would speak kindly to one another, that we would be respectful of one another, that we would uh, be helped to find a way through the situation that we were facing. I believe God answered that prayer. And others, although somewhat taken aback at the time, commented on it afterwards. Now, I recognize that times sadly have changed in the UK. Uh, to the point where even to offer to pray for a colleague or a client can lead to disciplinary action. How sad. So I'm not encouraging you to break the law, but I am encouraging you to listen to the prompting of the Holy Spirit and where appropriate, you know, to act upon it without breaking uh, the law or your workplace rules. Anyway, any, any fear that these disciples may have had as they went along their way were dispelled very quickly. We read in verse 32, So those who were sent went away and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. The two disciples did just as Jesus had asked. They didn't deviate from the instructions. They may have been tempted to go first and find the owners and ask, you know, Is it okay if we borrow the colt. That might have seemed the safer, more sensible course of action. 
It might have avoided any risk of confrontation. But they went and untied the colt, and when challenged, the words that Jesus had given them were sufficient as an explanation. It could have been that Jesus had made a prior arrangement. I don't know, but I prefer to believe that news of Jesus had spread. News of all his miraculous signs and wonders had spread, and his teaching meant that he was well known, and that the owners of the colt were very happy to be of service to him. Before, before we continue in Luke's account, I want us to look at a couple of verses in Matthew's Gospel. They're verses that don't get mentioned specifically in Luke's account. In Matthew 21 and verses 4 and 5, we read, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The prophet referred to here is Zechariah, and you'll find those words in chapter 9 of that book and verse 9. So here we see Jesus yet again, yet again fulfilling what had been written about him, in this case some 500 years earlier. Zechariah's prophecy is about the coming Messiah. The king whose coming he speaks of is not an earthly ruler, but one who has all power in heaven and over the earth, a king for whom status and pomp and ceremony is not important, but one who comes humbly. This king will not make his entry in traditional form, riding on a massive charger or a, a, a glorious chariot, but riding on a donkey, on a colt or a foal, one that had never been ridden before. I wonder if you were to name one characteristic of a donkey, what would it be? You can speak. Stubbornness. Yes, stubbornness is what comes to mind, isn't it? Stubborn as a mule. Um, they're not inclined to do what you want them to do or go where you want them to go. Add to that the fact that this colt had never been ridden before, and you might think this was a very strange choice. But Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem on an ass was symbolic of him coming in peace. The people were longing for a king whose coming would lead to the overthrowing of the, their oppressors, the Romans, one who would free them from all this oppression. But Jesus wanted to demonstrate that he wasn't that sort of king. His rule and reign would be very different. Let's read on. As they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As, and as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, having acquired the colt, the disciples prepare a makeshift saddle with their cloaks and placed other cloaks on the ground, a traditional way to welcome the king, much as we talk about you know, rolling out the red carpet. 
And as they come down the Mount of Olives, just to the east of Jerusalem, we're told that the whole multitude of disciples, or the large crowd as it was, began to rejoice. So Jesus wasn't just accompanied by his 12 disciples. It was the time for the week-long feast of Passover. So Jews from far and near would be journeying to Jerusalem to remember and celebrate the week-long feast of Passover. They were going to celebrate the release of their forefathers from their captivity in Egypt. They would have been joined by others who'd been accompanying Jesus and who'd seen him perform miracles. The raising of Lazarus is specifically mentioned in John's Gospel. Can you imagine the scene? I guess we might liken it to the scenes we've seen on royal occasions in this country. The Queen's Jubilee celebrations or a royal wedding. Crowds assembled in eager anticipation, singing and cheering, flags being waved and great excitement. Many of those gathering would have traveled long distances for a momentary glimpse, just a momentary glimpse of the royals. They were excited for who they were and for the occasion. I don't know if you've ever been to one of those occasions. I've just watched them on television, but many of you may have been and been part of those crowds. The sense of buzz and excitement. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the crowds were joyful and praised God for the miracles that they'd seen. They felt sure that Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem would signal a change for them here and now. Liberation from the Romans. They'd expected him to establish a kingdom there and then on earth. One in which they would rule rather than be ruled over. A political kingdom, not a spiritual one. They didn't understand the significance of Jesus entering Jerusalem on a donkey, nor did they realize the events that were to follow. While Jesus would celebrate the Passover meal with his disciples in Jerusalem, his purpose in going there was far more significant. He was heading to Jerusalem to fulfill the prophecy which for him meant reenacting that first Passover. When the Israelites were in captivity in Egypt and Pharaoh was refusing to give them their freedom, God sent a series of plagues. The final and most severe plague was that every firstborn son in Egypt would die. But the Israelites would be spared by taking and killing a male lamb without any blemish and daubing the blood on the doorposts and on the lintel of their houses. This plague convinced Pharaoh to give the Israelites their freedom from captivity and their freedom to worship God. The crowds who welcomed the arrival of Jesus weren't just in need of liberation from the Romans. They needed to be set free from their sin, their failure to live to God's standards. In Romans 3 and verse 23, Paul writes that all have sinned, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
And in John's Gospel, chapter 8 and verse 34, we read that Jesus said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. So just as the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, the crowds on that first Palm Sunday were in slavery, just a different form of slavery. What was true for them is true for us until we come to recognize our failings and call on him. In Hebrews chapter 9, we read that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sins. In coming to Jerusalem, Jesus was to present himself as the Lamb of God, unblemished by sin, and to be the sacrifice that brought freedom from the penalty that was theirs and that is ours, death and eternal separation from God. The crowds greeted Jesus with cries of Hosanna, literally, save now, we beseech thee. Matthew recounts them shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. In calling on the son of David, they were acknowledging him to be the Messiah, the anointed, the chosen one. This was the title by which the Jews would normally refer to the Messiah. And they bring to him all their praise and worship and adoration. They went further than this. They called for heaven to join with them in crying out, Hosanna in the highest. We're then told in verse 39 that some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to, said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The Pharisees weren't pleased. They weren't pleased at this praise and adulation that Jesus was receiving. They didn't recognize him as the promised Messiah. And they wanted Jesus to step in and stop the disciples. We may find Jesus' response strange and extreme. However, when you consider that Jesus was there at the creation of the world and he, everything that was created was for his glory, it doesn't seem so extreme. In Revelation 4, part of the vision that John describes is seeing 24 elders casting their crowns before the throne of God and saying, Worthy are you, worthy are you, O Lord, our, God, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So the stones could cry out. But we have far more reason to do so. We are created in his image and for relationship with him. So the crowds that day had every reason to praise him. And we have all the more reason to do so. As he's made it possible for us to be reconciled to God through what Jesus did that first holy week. So how are we to respond to this as we enter into Holy Week? If you've already placed your trust in Jesus, it's time, I think, for sober reflection, but also a joyous time. 
The words of Stuart Townsend's song, How Deep the Father's Love, sum it up for me. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. I wonder, have you lost the sense of awe and wonder at what Jesus has done to purchase your freedom? Have you allowed sin to accumulate in your life? Have you taken for granted this mercy and grace and forgotten what it is to come in repentance to seek forgiveness? Maybe as you reflect on your time as a Christian, you realize that the love that you had when you first came to know Jesus has grown cold. That you're no longer passionate about spending time with him, no longer passionate about reading his word or spending time talking to him in prayer. Perhaps you recognize that you no longer worship him with the same passion and exuberance that you once did. The passion and exuberance we see in those crowds who welcomed Jesus on that first Palm Sunday. Perhaps lockdown over the past year and the inability to meet in person with other Christians has left you feeling weary and listless. If that's you, be encouraged. His love for you has not changed. His love for you has not grown cold. He's never stopped watching over you. And he's been with you throughout all the events of the past year. You know, as I reflect on this, even King David, described in, in uh, Scripture as a man after God's own heart, had a time when he strayed from God, committing adultery with Bathsheba, and then seeking to cover it up by sending Uriah, her husband, to the heat of the battle, knowing that he would be killed. But I love Psalm 51 that captures confession and desire for restoration. David writes, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I'll teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. It's, it's a great prayer. It's a prayer I've used many times. Take time. Take time today. Take time this week to come back to him. Maybe use Psalm 51 as a model. It contains confession and repentance, recognition of God's unfailing love and mercy, 
a resolve to serve God and David's praise and worship for him. But perhaps as you sit here in the octagon or watch online, you don't yet know Jesus as Saviour and Lord. You haven't yet put your trust in him. You may be thinking that you're as good as the next person, that you try to live a good life, that you do loads of things to help other people. Maybe you see, you're seen as a pillar of the community. I have to tell you that these things will not lead to your salvation. They won't lead to you having an eternal relationship with the God who created you and who sustains you. The Bible teaches us that we are not saved by the things that we do, but by what Jesus did for us that first Easter week. He bore our sins on the cross. And it's by believing on him that we're saved. It's an amazing act of grace. I urge you to cry out to him this Easter time cry out to him, Hosanna, save me, O Lord. Acknowledge your need of him because of your sin. Confess your sin and commit your life to him. You'll find him to be faithful and just. He will forgive your sin and you will enter into a relationship with him. And that relationship means he will guide you through the rest of your days in this life. And more than that, that you'll have a hope of eternity spent with him. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask Phil and the, uh, and, uh, the band to come up and we'll sing our final song after this. But let me pray before we do that. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you so much that you came. I want to thank you so much that you came to earth. We want to thank you so much that you fulfilled everything that was prophesied that you would do. I want to thank you that you were prepared to humble yourself, humble yourself even to go to the cross, to die, blameless though you were, but to die in our place, to take on yourself our sin. And we thank you so much that you were prepared to do that. We thank you so much that you bore our sin on the cross. We want to thank you so much that that means that through relationship with you, we can have a relationship with your Father. We want to thank you so much that our sins can be forgiven, that we can know what it is to have a hope of an eternity spent with you. I want to thank you that we know that because of this, we can stand blameless before you. We want to thank you so much. I want to pray for any who don't yet know you. I want to pray, Lord Jesus, that you would open eyes today, that you'd unstop deaf ears, that you'd enable people to hear the message of your good news and to respond to that message today. I want to pray that people will put their trust in you this Easter time. I want to pray that this Easter time will mean new life, just as it meant resurrection for you, Jesus. just want to pray that it will mean new life uh, to people who find faith in you 
and put their trust in you. Lord Jesus, be with us now as we sing. And as we sing this final song, let's use it as a prayer as Phil leads us. Thanks, Phil.